When it comes to free speech, how far is too far? These websites are not ideal. They incentivize all kinds of behavior I'd rather they didn't incentivize. Last month, the professional right-wing controversialist Katie Hopkins was ruled permanently too controversial for Twitter. A lot of the time we get into a bit of a mess. We discuss all this as if it was part of an analogue world and actually we're in a digital world. But in a global online space, in practice, humanity clusters around on relatively few platforms. And the companies who run them are now constantly under fire for allowing what they allow and disallowing what they disallow. It's almost a free speech crisis. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today... That Katie Hopkins, was Twitter right to ban her? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So this new rival to Twitter, Parler, has been around since the middle of 2018, I think, and it's where Katie Hopkins has migrated to now that she's off Twitter. So let's just get into it and see if I can find her. Find it, okay. Put it in Google. Right, Parler. Free expression, user privacy. Parler.com forward slash ot forward slash access. Free expression, user privacy. Parler is an unbiased social media focused on real user experiences and engagement. Our content is moderated based off the FCC and the Supreme Court of the United States, which enables free expression without violence and a lack of censorship. Parler never shares your personal data. It's now inviting me to sign up. Okay. Right, now it's inviting me to enter a password, which I would never remember in a month of Sundays. I have my own formula for this. Ah, the provided password is not complex enough. Okay, I've used their password on the basis that I might not ever be coming back to this. So the reason why I'm going through all this is I want to log on to this new Twitter-type site, which people like Katie Hopkins and uh, a whole lot of Trump supporters have all gone off to saying that it's going to be much better than Twitter and all these other liberal-based sites. Now, they've sent me an SMS with the code. My parlor verification code is... I'm exhausted already, but I now personalise my experience, and it's telling me I can follow a series of 
sites i can next follow guy. to next parleys from these users will appear in your feed dan bongino who i believe is the founder team trump it invites me to follow eric trump the rather ghastly smiling son of donald trump and some chap called mark levin so i can follow these all guys um all white i can follow any of them select your profile color let's go for imperial purple it says continue to parlor and here we are david aronovich and it says i just joined parlor looking forward to meeting everyone here which not totally sure i am so at the top i've got a search bar and i'm going to put katie hopkins in and there she is ah and this is what it says and just to emphasize her selling point katie hopkins she seems to have called herself the biggest bitch in britain and i followed her she has 67 parleys whatever they are 287,000 followers here's her parley Four hours ago, she posted something saying the Premier League are trying to backpedal over Black Lives Matter. They went on bended knee to the thuggery against fans' wishes. I hope they paid the price. I didn't know that Katie Hopkins was able to speak for football fans. That's a new one on me. Oh, and and, and here is something that you might regard as an absolute staple of far-right posting. Katie Hopkins has just posted a, a news of a farm attack at Zastron SA, which she's called White Farmer Attacked by Two Black Attackers. And then she puts the end, love and respect to white farmers in South Africa. Well done, that brave man who shot one attacker twice in the chest and twice in the head, who died on the scene and the other one ran off. So well done, that white farmer, for killing a black man, uh, albeit an attacking black man. Essentially, the format is kind of Twitter-like. It's not badly designed at all, and it looks pretty professional. The fonts are good. The layout is clear. The posts are much bigger. You only get two to a page instead of the dozens and dozens. Obviously, I haven't got any following yet, and I haven't really got a timeline. So all I've got is the people it suggested to me, who were all people on the right or far right. And now I'm following Katie Hopkins. It's now suggesting on the right-hand side a number of other people that I could follow, just as Twitter suggests it. And also up there are a series of suggested hashtags, Parler, Parler USA, Parler UK. So Katie Hopkins, who has been at some point in her career sacked from an awful lot of newspapers, I, would, I wouldn't quite say most newspapers, but certainly many newspapers. She's also been let go by at least one radio station, has been working as a hate monger and has until recently had to mong her hate pro bono on Twitter. That's Hugo Rifkind, a columnist and leader writer at The Times. He's been well ahead of the curve on the rise of social media companies in the last few years. Twitter decided that they didn't want her on her platform either. There doesn't seem to be any particular spark for this, just a sort of general history of unpleasantness and so she was finally banished from twitter banned for life and so instead she has made her way over to a newish twitter equivalent called parlor which builds itself as a sort of twitter but a free speech twitter where one can say anything she's already been massively successful there she's already got something like a quarter of a million followers it's a site that has people like donald trump jr rudy Giuliani, milo yiannopoulos on it and some people are saying it's the new big thing. Am I right in thinking then that Parler is, at the moment, mostly being colonised by people who are significantly right of centre? I wouldn't just say mostly, I'd say only. Let's not beat around the bush, not just right of centre. 
very far from the right. You know, these are most of the comments under tweets, if not quite most of the tweets themselves. If you call them tweets on Parler, this is unclear, are the sort of things that one simply wouldn't, you'd get reported for on, on Twitter and rightly, no newspaper would publish, etc. Let's retrace our steps for a moment to remind ourselves who exactly Katie Hopkins is and how she came to be notorious. She started off on The Apprentice. She was the runner-up on The Apprentice in 2000 and perhaps seven or thereabouts. She made a splash on The Apprentice because she's very, she's very fluent in how she talks. Do you want me to I'm know? speaking. I am speaking. Well, it's dull, so I'm right. going to speak right over the top of you, sweetie. Did you Pete? want to win? Let the man talk. She was very opinionated. She disliked most things. And she got to the final two. It's just I'm making a decision slightly without having had the courtesy to speak to the people who provide the care for my children. So... Is that a risk? It's a risk. It's a discourtesy to my parents. And then declared that she didn't want to be Sir Alan's apprentice because she wanted to go home and raise her children. I think it's more important... I have the courtesy to get my plans in place first. And therefore, I suggest I stand down. Not long afterwards, she appeared in one of the tabloids having sex with her husband against a fence in a perhaps sort of... in what was supposed to be one of those shots that you don't know the paparazzi are taking. And there followed a kind of sort of growing media career, which got increasingly more and more controversial. Then she left the Sun for the Mail Online, and she was so controversial at the Mail Online that the Daily Mail once said in an editorial, we're not responsible for runs in the Mail Online, referring to one of her columns, because they were complaining about what people had been saying about it. She then went on to LBC. She was sacked from LBC after the Manchester 2017 Manchester Arena bombing, where she tweeted something about how what we needed was a final solution for Muslims. That more or less put paid to her sort of professional media career, but she has not gone away. I've always said this, that, that you guys, the liberal elite in London, are responsible for me. You are Dr Frankenstein and I am your monster. She's had quite a difficult life. She has a terrible problem with epilepsy, which I believe she's had operations for. So she's obviously had a difficult time. Uh, I met her once at a, at a book launch and she, she came up to me and said, I've always wanted to meet you. You're very brave. You write the things that nobody else dares to. And I was incredibly sort of alarmed and frightened by the fact that Katie Hopkins had wanted to say this to me. And then I realised she thought I was Giles Corrin. <laughs> and I asked you for a food recommendation. <laughs> now, one of the things that's been going on as the background to this is this business of Twitter and Facebook increasingly coming under pressure to do something about voices who are regarded as being hate-mongers, purveyors of hate speech. And one of the things that's very interesting about this is that the more the pressure comes on Twitter and Facebook, the more they've had to move away from the position, look, we're just a platform, we're not a publisher, anybody can do what they like on us, it's not up to us to tell people what to say. And the more they've been shifted to the position of saying, well, maybe we are kind of publishers and maybe we are kind of responsible for what happens on our platform. Take us through that, Hugo, because... It's full of implications. I mean, Twitter has done more of this journey than Facebook has. Facebook is still fighting hard to not fully, really be responsible for particularly political speech. With Twitter, it's been particularly interesting. When the DCMS Select Committee fake news inquiry went over to Washington in, when was it, beginning of last year, I went with them and I sat there in a hall in Washington while a man from Twitter said quite openly that we do not regard untrue things on our platform as being our problem. 
It is the problem of the people who, who say them. It's nothing to do with us. We are, we are neutral. We are a neutral platform. And where things on our platform offend or are untrue, that's simply not our problem. Now, this is very much not what Twitter 2020 seems to think. Particularly, this has come to a, came to a head when they started putting warning notes on the tweets of Donald Trump. Have you given any consideration to deleting your account, to just walking away from this platform you've been so critical of? Well, you know, if uh, you weren't fake, I would not uh, even think about it. I would do that in a heartbeat. I'm real, but the, sir. The news, uh, the news is fake. The choices that Twitter makes when it chooses to suppress, edit, blacklist, shadow, ban, are editorial decisions, pure and simple. They're editorial decisions. In those moments, Twitter ceases to be a neutral public platform and they become... Donald Trump tweeted something first, alleging that postal voting in America was going to be thoroughly fraudulent. Twitter put something on there saying there was no evidence for this. They amended it saying it was hateful. Trump has obviously been deeply, deeply upset about this. But Twitter has decided, yes, we are now responsible for the content on our site. Now, what that does, it pushes them towards being more like a publisher, because it's been a complaint of publishers, newspaper publishers particularly, that, hang on, we're responsible for the stuff that is written on our pages. How come you're not responsible for the stuff that's written on your websites? President Trump tweeting his reaction to those protests overnight, Twitter then flagging his comments, saying the tweet violated rules about glorifying violence, escalating his showdown with the social media giant. The second time they did this, Trump tweeted about the, it was right at the start of the Black Lives Matters protests, and Trump tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Twitter put a note on top of that one, which said this tweet violated Twitter's rules about glorifying violence. Uh, which, of course, is a remarkable thing to have done to the president. What this all means is that Twitter is, of course, now behaving much more like a traditional publisher, being responsible for stuff that it publishes and the effect it has, and being responsible particularly for taking down or editing stuff that it does not wish to be associated with. And it is in this context that they have ultimately got rid of, of Katie Hopkins. Facebook is putting up much more of a fight in this regard. Facebook does not want to be considered responsible for content. This is partly because Facebook has far more content than Twitter. But Facebook has this position that as soon as it starts moderating political speech, I guess hate speech sort of is political speech, but as soon as it starts moderating political speech, it is them sort of stepping on the toes of what, what governments ought to be doing. It would Really, they'd rather governments did it because it, it takes them off the hook, I think. To me, this has been a very long process and a process which is seems quite problematic. Uh, you talked about how Facebook had many more postings, essentially. There are billions. So somebody's got to search through those billions of postings and so on and effectively say, this one's kosher, this one's not. Uh, and that's a huge exercise. Well, firstly, it absolutely can be done. This is not quite me saying it, it should be done in these terms. It is very simple to shut down political speech on social media, if that's what you wish to do. Friday's referendum has put Ireland's young women on the emotional front line. For many, this is a watershed moment, a chance to force their country to hear them. For example, during the Irish abortion referendum, Google didn't allow there to be any political advertising on YouTube. They just axed it, said we're not going to do that because we can't control it, so it's just gone. Now, all these companies, Facebook particularly, is very, very successful, for example, curbing child pornography. So they could, in the same way, curb political speech. It's complicated to do that. You can't really curb malign political speech without curbing less malign political speech. So it's difficult to do, but there are algorithmic solutions. Or probably a better thing for them to do would be to do it more retrospectively. Things would have to be complained about and assessed retrospectively, but they would still have a process for policing them and taking them down. 
Again, it sounds like a huge and insurmountable task, but that's their fault. They built this system. They built this system that is that is so wonderfully well suited towards the spreading of untruths and propaganda that has in some parts of the world had terrible consequences. And so the fact that it is hard to do is their problem because they built it. What would you regard as some of those worst consequences? I mean, genocide in, in, in Burma, in Myanmar, was, um, was, uh, is widely regarded as, as, as having been uh, heavily facilitated by fake news being spread on Facebook. The general tone of politics in the world, in the West particularly, that has grown more incendiary, more, more loud, more divisive and more extremist, has an awful lot to do with the tones that are encouraged and perpetuated on social media. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Asma Mir, and if you enjoy the Stories of Our Times podcast, make a mental note to catch my breakfast programme with Stig Abel on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 6am to 10am on Times Radio. Know your times. Twitter has permanently banned conservative blogger Milo Yiannopoulos under its abusive content policy after he sparred with actress Leslie Jones on Twitter this week while users deluged her account with racist and Controversial commentator Katie Hopkins has been permanently banned from Twitter after breaking the site's hateful conduct policy. Twitter gives Alex Jones the boot, the social networking site permanently banning he and his media company Infowars. Now, in 2020, both Twitter and Facebook seem prepared to take action against certain categories of posts being published on their sites. Katie Hopkins' efforts, for example, were deemed by Twitter to be hate speech and therefore unacceptable. But just how do social media giants decide what is and isn't kosher? Twitter doesn't have a huge amount of advertising to speak of. What you get on Twitter is user-generated content, for the most part. There's a small amount of advertising, but really not very much. So what they have tried to control is unpleasantness. 
is is not even just hate speech. It's violent speech. It's also abusive speech, violence and abuse, really. They've tried to stamp out. They ban a lot more people. They block a lot more people for short periods of time. They just seem to have had a, a sea change in which they now regard content as being their problem. And they don't wish Twitter to be an unpleasant user experience. That's their focus. Facebook has done much more to control and curb paid advertising. Facebook also owns, owns Instagram and has done quite a lot also on Instagram to try to control and curb self-harm trends, things like that. Teenage girls particularly circulating damaging content. They've had some success with all of that. I occasionally feel a bit bad for Facebook because Facebook is always the company that gets beaten up here simply because they're the biggest. They have really tried. They've just still got just such a long way to go. Now, the problem there is, it seems to me, and you might disagree, is actually the algorithm that pushes this stuff at you continuously rather than the fact that the stuff actually exists online. A lot of the time we get into a bit of a mess because we do, for want of a better analogy, we discuss all this as if it was part of an analog world and actually we're in a digital world. We're much more comfortable talking about free speech, what should be up, what what should not be up what people should be able to see and what they shouldn't be able to see, which is both quickly unenforceable, but also, if it were enforceable, slightly like tyrannical when you're talking about content that must not exist anywhere. Whereas actually, in the new digital world, what's much more important is the ease with which you come across stuff. So, for example, if we're, if we're getting back to Katie Hopkins, where we started with free speech, I believe in Katie Hopkins' free speech. I believe she should be able to publish within the law, publish what she likes somewhere on the internet. However, that's not the same thing as believing that Twitter should be obliged to host our content in a place where it's easy to come across and easy to see. It's simply not the same thing. This is really very interesting because here's a counter-argument for you for a Mm -hmm. moment. Something like Twitter and Facebook, they're not just small publishers, they're gigantic publishers, and they have become the purveyors of a significant proportion, not just of the national, but of the international conversation. To put it simply, if you're not on them, you're not really anywhere. And so consequently, if for whatever reason you are chucked off, actually, you could as well be publishing from the moon. That is true. But um, well, for, I mean, firstly, there's, there's a world of ground covered in for whatever reason. They're actually not terrible chucking people off. They don't really chuck. I mean, they get things wrong and, 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 and stuff. I mean, people they chuck off are becoming a problem for Twitter, generally, are the kind of thing that, you know, it is their website, it is a private company, it is content they don't wish to host. I don't see any, even in the areas where this is problematic, and I agree it sometimes is problematic. Twitter has political views that I don't share, for example. I mean, Twitter bans an awful lot of feminists, for example, normally because they've tweeted about trans issues. I wish they wouldn't do that. I'm honestly not sure what the alternative is to that. It is a much greater imposition on free speech as soon as you start saying to a, a website, the publishers of a website, which is what Twitter are, you must host content you don't want to. That, I can't really sort of countenance any argument that, that greenlights that. So in the end, if, if Twitter wishes to turn itself into a place where certain kinds of debates don't happen, those kinds of debates will happen somewhere else instead. Well, you put your finger on a, on a really tricky problem, don't you? Because I can actually imagine telling Twitter, yep, you've got to have everybody on there. You can put on little warnings, but you do have to have everybody, providing they behave in a certain kind of a way, let's say, but you've got to have every kind of opinion on there. But otherwise, what you get is what you get currently, which is everybody lobbying for every who doesn't like somebody, lobbying for them to be chucked off Twitter and quite often succeeding. Well, firstly, a lot of this is about, it's America, it's the First Amendment. 
right? So you can't, um, they, they simply couldn't pass a law in America that would oblige Twitter to host content it doesn't want to. That is a free speech violation. So it's it's not going to happen. Global legislation against Twitter that runs counter to the First Amendment. But secondly, I don't think it's right that a website, even if it's Twitter, should be forced to publish stuff it doesn't want to publish. I don't see why it's different telling Twitter it needs to host a tweet that Twitter doesn't want to host to telling us as a newspaper we need to host a column that we don't want to host. Okay, except that we're one newspaper amongst many and one outlet amongst many, and Twitter is a gigantic outlet where only a few people are effective competition to it. Well, yes, so it's a marketplace. So what? I mean, you know, if you kind of, I mean, this happens already. You know, we're talking about feminism and, and trans discourse. A lot of that now happens in other places instead. It happens on Mumsnet, for example. Probably wouldn't happen on Mumsnet if it was easier for it to happen on Twitter. But Twitter's made the decision that they don't want that kind of content. Again, I wish they'd made a different decision, but I can't really disagree with their right to make it. Okay, so one of the things that then happens is the great way of shutting somebody up effectively that you don't want to hear is to campaign for Twitter to knock them off. Yeah. Doesn't sound ideal to me. Look, it's not an ideal situation. These websites are not, are not ideal. They they incentivize all kinds of behavior. I'd rather they didn't incentivize. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not clear what your alternative would be. I mean, look, it, it, and you know what? It, it does happen. But Twitter is pressured to be more inclusive, but not necessarily in a good way. I mean, this is this is why Donald Trump's still there, right? You know, because the, the, the the cost, both the political and reputational cost of getting rid of Donald Trump is deemed too high a cost for Twitter to pay. None of these situations are perfect. But I, again, I, I keep saying we. This is the website that exists. This is the world that exists. I'm really not sure what the alternative is. I just don't think you can pass a law that tells a website they've got to host content they don't want to. So we're in this kind of strange position whereby we might agree that you can't compel platforms to include pieces, but we're both worried about the move to make those platforms include no pieces from certain points of view. Yeah, but that's not strange. I mean, there's plenty of things in the world that I'm worried about that I wouldn't pass laws against. I mean, that's like most things in the world, isn't it? Um, you know, I, again, I, I don't think that's terribly strange. Not every problem, whether it's a, an internet problem or a real world problem, has a sort of, you know, legislative solution. No, we can agree about the law. I think you, uh, you make a very good case there. But then there is the question of what we do to try and ensure we don't silo. Because I don't know what you think, but it seems to me a bad idea that all these people would decamp and go to something like Parler, where they'll all speak to themselves, and that Twitter becomes effectively, for many people, a kind of left-of-centre thing where you imagine that everybody is of the same opinion. It, that seems to me like a, a genuine social problem and social weakness. I don't think that's quite the situation. For one thing, I don't think Twitter would will ever become a, a left-wing platform. The, the right is is very healthy on on Twitter and indeed on Facebook. In fact, we live at a time when both our country and the United States have governments that were, that were basically campaigned and won on social media. I don't think that's really a problem. If you look at a site like Parler and you look at the nasty silo nature of it, I think it's what's very important to realize is this was happening anyway, just with other people. Right. This was, I mean, look, I'm not saying it's not bad. So you get silos like that and they do, they do radicalize people, but that was kind of happening anyway. The idea that you had discourse between someone like Katie Hopkins and her followers and some of her followers were dissuaded from agreeing with the nasty things she would tweet about Muslims because they were worried that somebody who reads The Guardian might see them. I, I, it just doesn't really make any sense. These platforms allow siloing within the platforms. I think the problem with your argument is it's kind of suggesting that there was something much more legitimate and outward-looking about what the kind of people who will now make their stand on Parler were doing before they were on Parler. I think they're just doing exactly the same thing, just somewhere else. No, I'm just worried that 
somebody will sooner or later come for me and you, and we'll find ourselves having to set up kind of moderate parlour. Yes, well, sure. And that would be all right, wouldn't it? I mean, firstly, I don't think that will happen, because I don't think, I think there are differences between moderate speech and extreme speech that are not just, that are not just subjective, that are not just, oh, some people like one and some people like others. I can't really imagine myself saying anything that would be deemed beyond the pale by huge numbers of people on Twitter. And if I did, then I think my own views would have changed so radically from what I normally think they are that, that, I don't know, maybe I'd have it coming. I don't think the mob is always right, but I don't think the mob is arbitrary either in quite that respect. And then one other final thought about this, um, and it just suddenly occurred to me, is it possible that the people who campaign quite hard to get other people turfed off Twitter actually rather enjoy those other people being on Twitter so that they have something to campaign against? <laughs> yes, of course. This is the, the sort of inherent with a lot of these platforms. They reward this kind of behaviour. They reward the fight. The appeal of Twitter is the fight. The appeal of, of Twitter or of Facebook is the adrenaline you get from a fight or it's the boost you get from a like. You know, it's it's one or the other. And so the sort of placid, middle-of-the-road, nice discourse is just simply not what they're for. Now, I understand and approve of the way that they're sort of trying to change that. I'm not sure they really can. I think it's slightly embedded in the architecture of the systems, of the websites themselves. But I completely, yeah, I completely support their desire to make themselves nicer places and nicer arenas. Now, whoever you agree with this in discussion, whether it's me or whether it's Hugo, one of the things that we can decide upon is that action like this by Twitter is much more likely to mean that people find other places that they can go and be happy on and uncensored on. And that's why you have Parler, and that's why I'm sitting on Parler. And since we began this podcast... I have a new follower. Now let's have a look. He's called Joseph P. Daniel. Let's find out a bit about Joseph P. Daniel. He described himself as prophet, seer, ambassador of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, like the wind, priest after the order of Melchizedek, adopted son of Father Yahweh, follower of the Holy Spirit. And apparently he has 176,000 people following him on parlour. <laughs> which means that we could have started a whole new religion. I'm going to sign off this now because all Parler's really done is hooked me up with a series of people on the political right or the far political right or people who think they're the sons of Jesus Christ. If Parler acts as a kind of international Breitbart, which is the far-right news agency, then I don't think it does have much of a future because I think really people just want to talk at each other, not necessarily to each other. And I think even people on the far left or the far right, they don't just want to be heard by people on the far left and far right. They want everybody to hear them. And the knowledge that you're only, you're only ever speaking to your own side, I think after a while is a little bit disappointing. So unless it expands beyond um, that fairly kind of small group of people politically, then I don't think it'll last. And I don't know what the future holds for Katie Hopkins personally. I hope that whatever it is, whatever demons exercise her, she manages somehow to deal with. But I think for people who, if you like, are professional controversialists, my feeling about it is that fairly soon we're going to get 
understand the trick of it and we're going to get tired of it and we're going to want a little bit more substance than this continuous shouting. But, you know, that's also what I hope. So when what you believe is also what you hope, you have to be careful. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Hugo Rifkind, columnist and leader writer for The Times. You can read more of Hugo's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. And you can also listen to him on his new Saturday morning radio show on Times Radio. The producers today were Will Rowe and Dan Hardoon. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. And the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe now to never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. See you soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.